Welcome to this AMR audio interview sponsored by ASME Applied Mechanics Reviews and the Applied Mechanics Division within ASME. I'm your host, Harry Dankovich, and also the editor of Applied Mechanics Reviews. Applied Mechanics Reviews is an international review journal that serves as a premier venue for dissemination of material across all sub-disciplines of applied mechanics and engineering science, including fluid and solid mechanics, heat transfer, dynamics and vibration, and applications. This series of AMR audio interviews features personal reflections of my guests on matters pertaining to all aspects of applied mechanics research, including past, current, and predicted research trends, a professional career in science and academia, scientific dissemination and peer review, public engagement and impact, and curricular innovation and developments. We hope that you find the AMR interviews a valuable complement to the perhaps less personal and more technically focused material available through the AMR journal as well as other technical journals in the area of applied mechanics. I'm very happy to present to you today's guest, Rodney Clifton, Rush C. Hawkins, Professor Emeritus in the School of Engineering at Brown University. Professor Clifton obtained all his degrees in civil engineering, beginning with a Bachelor of Science in 1959 from the University of Nebraska, and followed by a Master of Science and PhD from Carnegie Institute of Technology in 1961 and 64, respectively. In 1965, he joined Brown University as an assistant professor of engineering and was promoted to associate professor in 1968. He held a full professor position at Brown from 1971 until retirement in 2011. Professor Clifton served as chairman of the executive committee for the division of engineering at Brown between 1974 and 1979 and as dean of engineering between 1998 and 2003. He provided additional service as interim dean between 2008 and 2011. Professor Clifton's research output includes over 170 archival publications, with some of them more prominently cited, including a paper on the analytical characterization of shear localization in thermoplastic materials from the Journal of Applied Mechanics in 1987, and more recently a paper on hyaluronic acid-based microgels and microgel networks for vocal fold regeneration from the journal Biomacromolecules, published in 2006 and cited around 100 times since then. Professor Clifton is also a listed inventor on a patent on a method and apparatus for measuring the viscoelastic response of vocal fold tissues and scaffolds across a frequency range, issued in 2008 with Christopher Bull and Tong Zhao. In addition, his ongoing research interests include the study of high strain rate response of elastomers and metal organic frameworks. Professor Clifton's many honors include the ASME Melville Medal in 1981, the Society of Engineering Science Prager Medal in 1986, and membership since 1989 in the National Academy of Engineering. He received the ASME Timoshenko Medal in 2000. The interview you're about to hear was recorded in East Lansing, Michigan on June 17, 2014. Professor Clifton, it's a true pleasure to welcome you to this AMR audio interview. Thank you for inviting me. I know that I omitted some key details before you even joined uh, the University of Nebraska for your Bachelor of Science, and I, I'd be very happy if you wanted to talk about some of those aspects of your, your life, as well as what followed, uh, including some of the positions that I uh, mentioned and didn't mention. I was born uh, on a farm, literally on the farm, in the farmhouse. Oh, really? Wow. Five miles east and north of Orchard, Nebraska, a little town of 493 people. My parents were renting there. At that time, people did a little of everything. I so see. they had some cows, some pigs, some chickens. For their own subsistence? And Yes, and mm -hmm. then they would sell the eggs and the cream to get some spending money to buy the other stuff for groceries. It was a tough time. 
1937, so it was a time of uh, drought, and, drought, drought yeah. and depression, yeah. so a difficult time. Well, then after that, my parents moved to town, to Orchard, and they operated a restaurant. They were there for a few years at a very good time in that they were building Highway 20 through Orchard, and people had to have some place to eat when they worked on this road, and my mother was a good cook, so that worked out for them. They saved up enough money to buy a farm which was a mile and a half east of Orchard. And that's where I was living first, went to school, went to a one-room country school, started... With how many, how many other students? Um, there was about one in every grade. There were two in my oh, grade, so eight to ten students total. In the whole one room yeah, classroom? Yeah, sounds a little too high, maybe six to really? eight. So I stayed there through fourth grade. And the instructor was local or someone that was brought in? Uh, it was... A woman uh, that, uh, I don't know where her training was, probably Wayne State Teachers College, uh -huh. but she had to teach all eight grades. Yeah. It's actually a very good form of education because if you're attentive, you can sit there and learn about everything in the first eight grades while you're still in about third grade because uh -huh. the others have to go up and recite in front of the teacher oh, yeah. and if you just kind of learn all that stuff. We moved to Back to Orchard. My dad started working in the bank. So I went to the rest of grade school there and to high school there. My class was one of the biggest classes in years. We had 27 students in oh, my class, yeah. and it was great for me. I could play on the football team, be the quarterback, play on the baseball team, be the shortstop. Uh, <laughs> I had thought from the very beginning I was going to go to the University of Nebraska. My parents never talked about anything else. Was there any other college education? There, there were, no. My dad, well, that's not completely true. My dad had a couple years. He had uh, one year at Omaha University and then one year postgraduate from the high school. No, I was the one that was going off to college. <laughs> Went to Nebraska, lived in the dorm. I liked it very much. Lincoln, Nebraska is a very nice place. And second year I joined a fraternity, Sigma Phi Epsilon, and that was very nice. I uh, didn't know what to study, but I'd had a... A friend whose dad did a little bit of engineering, so civil engineering sounded good to me, and mm. turned out that, that was I was well-suited for that. I um, got a scholarship in my sophomore year from Paxton Burling Steel Company. Somehow or another, they decided that I would be a good teacher of engineering drawing, even though that was my poorest <laughs> subject. I was not very... It was very, a key, key subject at the yeah. time. And for many right, so after, we all yeah. had to do drawing and sure. perspective, and uh, anyway, uh, I taught my junior and senior years. Mm. First year, there was an instructor, and I just kind of worked with the students. But after that, they let me do the lectures and do everything. Mm -hmm. So I just had to show my grade sheet at the end of the semester, mm -hmm. and they would sign off. And I was working with students who were much older than I am. This was the time of the GI Bill, and these oh, people yes. had come back, back from the war. Yeah. And so they were in my classes. During the summers, I worked for the state of Nebraska, Department of Roads and Bridges. One year in the bridge design office in Lincoln, and the other year on the job site where they're building what is now US-80 between Lincoln and Omaha. These uh, state workers didn't like to work at nights. So after I was experienced, I remember one August, they said, why don't you take the night shift? <laughs> and so I would be there with full responsibility for turning down and just shutting off this whole operation if I found that the soil wasn't being properly compacted uh -huh. or something like that. Uh -huh. So. But these were otherwise machines that were running? Oh, yes. I mean, we were, we were building Nature. a road. Yeah, so you right. put the sub-base down sure. and Same sort of compact it. Yeah. Uh, Same approach as today. 
put concrete mm -hmm. on top of that. Then I went to work for Paxton Burling Steel Company in Omaha when I graduated. I was supposed to be in a training plan. I was their first scholarship student, their first one to go there. So I worked some in the steel plant itself, fabricating structural steel, and then some in the drawing office, detailing structural steel. Then um, I got this idea that maybe I should look into graduate school. And it was a perfect time. Sputnik had gone up. Big investments. Coming. The U.S. had made this big investment, National Defense Education Act. Turns out that I applied to a number of places, and uh, Carnegie Mellon offered me a national, Carnegie Tech at the time, That's I right. say. Right. I Let me say it, that yeah. correctly. Carnegie Tech offered me an NDEA fellowship. I was married and had one child at the time, so it was, it was perfect for me. We moved then to Pittsburgh and had a... Very, very nice time there. I had a, an advisor, Tung Ao, who was a structural engineer. I read about orthotropic plate bridges. They're steel bridges with stiffeners in two directions. Germany was being rebuilt after the war, and they were trying to build steel bridges. So my master's thesis was on orthotropic plate bridges. Did you have an opportunity to visit uh, sites in Germany where they were doing no. construction? But I did have opportunity to work with uh, one of the big consulting firms in Pittsburgh mm -hmm. that was doing some of this kind of design. Mm -hmm. Then I was kind of told to go to the library and find a topic. Mm -hmm. So this is now Not, for the PhD. All right. My thesis advisor had 13 students, I believe, oh. and was also a textbook writer. So he didn't really yes. have the research program to handle all these students that they could get now with these NDA fellowships and other forms of support they had. I found waves, and I just loved waves. Mm -hmm. And so for a civil engineering student, you could have a double major. So I was a double major in fluid mechanics and solid mechanics mm -hmm. and took a lot of math and had wonderful math teachers. So I studied waves, and uh, it was also the time for computers, so I studied numerical methods for waves, and that was my Ph.D. thesis. Mm -hmm. It was essentially a method for symmetric hyperbolic systems of partial differential equations, and specifically those equations that describe elastic and elastic plastic behavior of materials. Program that ran some calculations. Now they seem minuscule uh -huh. <laughs> compared to what people do, but uh, I had to go every night. I could get a 45-minute run run it a ways and then get a deck of cards out and run it a little ways further. Right. This was a 2D problem. Finally, I had propagated the wave six times the thickness. Okay. <laughs> and that was it. Yeah. But while I was doing that, important things were happening. I, I was reading. I pretty well figured out where the action was in solid mechanics. And it was at Brown University. Professor Prager had put together, through the Division of Applied Math, essentially all the notables in solid mechanics. The other place was the um, Quran Institute at NYU. But I remember my thesis advisor saying to me that, you know, it's better to be a more applied person in a theoretical group, <laughs> a more theoretical person in an applied group than a more an applied uh, person in a theoretical applied, group. In a theoretical oh, okay. group. So when I got an offer from Brown, I was a numerical analyst at that point. So more on the theory side. Right. But the Brown group would be... The, the, the Brown so, group, it turns out, was yeah, very theoretical. I would think so, yeah. But relative to some other places that, that right? I didn't... It was a good choice for me. Mm -hmm. I went there as a postdoc. It was a very good time. There were 
people that were leaving. That was when some of the big names left. Uh, Ross Lee went to Stanford. Eli Sternberg went to Caltech. Right. Uh, Dick Shield left. Okay. Uh, uh, Toronto Nott went to Yale. And Saul Bodner went to Israel. And, well, just a whole big exodus. But good things happened from that. Uh-huh. Brown made a really bold move. You don't often see this. Brown went out and hired in one at one time eight applied mathematicians from the Research Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton, and they established the Lefschetz Center for Dynamical Systems at Brown. So applied math moved from continuum mechanics to dynamical systems. That was very good for us in some ways in that it meant that mechanics moved more towards engineering, and I think it gave us two things. One, a close connection with material science, and another, a closer connection with experiments. Paul Simons, who did structural dynamics, was chair of the search committee that brought me there, so he was kind of my host. And one of the first things he gave me was a a report from Lawrence uh, Livermore National Labs. It was called the Hemp Code, a large finite element code for doing impact calculations of interest to defense. So high strain rate shocks. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Paul Simons thought I'd be very interested in this. Well, I, I was, but it had kind of a negative effect on me because I could see this big code and I could see that they had this huge computer and they had eight people working on this code. And that didn't look to me like a very good area for me to compete in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Their equations didn't describe material behavior very well. And it was then that I thought that I would try to get more on the materials side and try to understand the material behavior that had to be described to put into these codes. So I started to work in Harry Kolsky's lab. I did pulse propagation in aluminum bars. That was my first exposure to experiments. Very nice uh, interaction with uh, Saul Bodner. I was kind of one doing experiments, but also doing the analysis, doing wave analysis. But you obviously had exposure to a lot of very practical, I mean, your work as a civil engineer, structural engineer was very hands-on, I would have thought. But nothing dynamic, uh-huh. nothing very profound in terms of trying to describe the material behavior. Brown was known at the time in plasticity for combined states of stress, tension and torsion of tubes mm-hmm. and how do you describe that behavior if you know the behavior, say, in tension or the behavior in torsion? How do you describe it in terms of combined stress? So my first area was to try to take that into the dynamic regime. And my first PhD student did uh, combined longitudinal and torsional plastic waves in a thin-walled tube. And I did the theory and he did the experiments. That was helpful to me. We made some terrible mistakes in okay. first doing those experiments, uh-huh. but I liked the experiments. Yeah. I liked what we got out finally, and it convinced me that it was probably a good thing to be bringing together experiment, theory, and computation, and that's been a theme for me and my students now for 40 years or so. You're listening to an Applied Mechanics Review's audio interview from June 17, 2014, with Professor Rodney Clifton of the School of Engineering at Brown University. I'm your host, Harry Dankovich. 
I was raised in this Nebraska farm and felt you always had to pay your own way and take care of yourself, and so I wrote a proposal. This is still as a, a postdoc, or this as is a postdoc. As a postdoc. Mm -hmm. So I wrote this proposal mm -hmm. and took it into Dan Drucker, who, although he might not have had the the title of department chair, he was certainly the leader mm -hmm. of this group, and he looked at the proposal. And he said, well, it's a very nice proposal. We could submit it, but we don't really need to. We have enough money. <laughs> and I think of that sometimes when I think of how hard it is for yeah. young people to get started, and even for some of us senior people to keep going. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a different time. The support was mostly from the Office of Naval Research. They, they took pride in who worked for them. They didn't want you working for th five agencies or four agencies. They wanted you to put several months of time on their project, which is the complete opposite the way it is now. They try to have you have as little time as possible on the, on the grants. I had some very nice experiences there. I remember they had a meeting about need to buy equipment. And I was the youngest kid on the block, and they turned to me first, mm. <laughs> which was very nice. Dan Drucker did that. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'd like a dual beam oscilloscope. So he wrote number one on the board, dual beam oscilloscope, yeah. Clifton. Uh -huh. <laughs> Very nice. The fact that there are, uh, at various times in the history of academic departments, groups that grow into this critical mass that really mm -hmm. becomes visible across the international community. How do these things happen? What makes it possible? I don't know what makes it possible. I have a little sense of what limits it. Okay. In our case, we we hung together very well, and Jim Rice did go to Harvard, but there was no big Falling change Harvard, after yeah. that. Mm -hmm. We added some more young people and yeah. kept going, but uh, applied math had a real eruption where these people just went off in all directions, and I guess there was too much energy packed in, I see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in too few state. positions, and right. people wanted to have more of a say of ah, how things would go and, and, and so on. I think it's... Uh, it's related to, to shared interests and shared respect. You could go to a meeting and Jim Rice would give a talk and you just agreed with everything they said, mm -hmm. you know, and that, that kind of... Mm -hmm. You had that. confidence, trust yes, each other. right, so yeah. great confidence. Yeah. And a sense of community in that there are certain jobs that have to be done. Proposals, group proposals have to be written. Mm -hmm. uh, someone has to teach the freshman course or gets to teach the freshman course. We all took those responsibilities. One of the experiences that ended up being very important to me was um, I read this paper by uh, people from General Motors, and they described wave calculations in some material. And I looked at that, and I thought, I don't believe this is quite right, and so... I did the calculations myself, mm -hmm. and I could see that they'd used a computer code that had artificial viscosity in it, so what they were describing was the artificial viscosity uh -huh. in that code. So I wrote to them about that, and they hired me. I became a consultant to the General Motors Technical Center in Warren, Michigan. Went there, wrote a computer code that summer that we presented in the fall, worked intensely. What I really got an appreciation for was the plate impact experiment because that's what people there in the lab were doing. And I could soon see that all the action in impact is occurring right near the impact face. That's where the real high strain rates are. That's where the high stresses are. I uh, had a sabbatical coming up, 
in 71, 72. So I had a gas gun built for me while I was away. And I brought together my interest in waves, my interest in looking at close to the impact face where the interesting things occur. And then I mentioned earlier combined longitudinal and torsional, combined stress states by coming up with this pressure shear paid impact. So we impact two plates that are parallel in order to produce plane waves, but they're inclined relative to their direction of approach. So they produce both normal stress and shear stress. That has been the cornerstone of my work ever since. And it allows you to do plane wave experiments Mm -hmm. at very high rates, very high pressures, and get the material behavior in a regime where people couldn't get to. And the objective uh, were to develop new constitutive laws for those high strain rates, but also to validate some of the mathematical predictions as to the wave propagation? It was to help with constitutive models Mm -hmm. that could be applicable in this region of higher strain rates. Uh, Strain rates in the past, the highest rates were the Hopkinson bar or Kolsky bar experiments. Those were up to about 10 to the third per second. Right away, we were at 10 to the fifth to 10 to the seventh per second. And we got out into a regime where you could really see rate effects in materials. So you did a sabbatical, you said, while they were building the argon, and that was actually in England. Right. I wanted to do some biomechanics, and so I was kind of resident mathematician and mechanics type in this group over there. I worked on waves in the basilar membrane, in the inner ear, mm-hmm. the so-called place theory of hearing. I went up to, to London, to the Royal Ear, Nose, and Throat Hospital. There's a couple there that worked on bats, and uh, she they're from Estonia, and she kind of was known as Batwoman, and he, he was known as Batman because Batman. they worked together on bats. Yes, and, uh-huh. and what they did is that he was the more the electrical engineer type. So they would go out to a bat cave where they could find these insect-eating bats. They were the ones with a good echolocation. And he would record the sounds that they make. Somehow they would capture a bat. I don't know how you capture a bat. And she would make serial cross-sections through the inner ear. So she had all the geometry. It was perfect for me. I had all the geometry from her. I had the frequency range that uh, had been measured and this should work, that they should hear best in the range of the sounds that they make. Well, there are some undetermined parameters in this. If you tune those parameters to make that kind of work, it didn't work at all for <laughs> elephants. It was just completely wrong for uh-huh. elephants. <laughs> uh-huh. So that's one of the things that's mostly still in my desk. I see. <laughs> but uh, it was a good year. I've tried to use my sabbatical leaves to learn something. Mm -hmm. My model for that was the head of civil engineering at Carnegie Tech when I was there, Tom Stelson. That's what he tried to do when he went on sabbatical. And so that's what I started off doing when I went to Southampton. And what I continued to do when I went to Stanford for the sabbatical in 7980, I was going to say took. I sat in on the first year courses in applied physics. Because I just didn't have that background. Beautiful course in quantum mechanics, classical electrodynamics, Mm -hmm. really good subjects. And it was just great to just do an occasional problem here and there. Uh And uh, I had sabbatical again in 2003. So I went up to MIT. I don't know if you know the name Bob Langer, but he is a very prominent biomedical engineer. 
has a huge group. When I arrived, there were 78 people in the group, and by the time I left, it was there were 90. I had talked to him and said, I'll come up and see if a math mechanics type could be of any help up here. And I went around and met with his postdocs. There were a lot of problems I thought that I could help with, but the one that I was attracted to that had the most waves work was the vocal folds. Bob Langer's work overall was tissue-related, uh, yes. variety of parts of the body? Yes, he's a, he's a material science chemical engineer okay. type. This particular tissue, it's a soft tissue on your vocal cords. It's so soft, it's like mucus, and it has a wave speed of about two-thirds of a meter per second. Really, really slow. Mm -hmm. It's the tissue that's damaged if you're a smoker, if you get cancer, they have to do surgery, if polyps grow. It's the tissue that uh, singers like Julie Andrews had, yeah, to, right. had problems with. So what to do to help those people? Whenever something is done there, what happens is scar tissue grows back, and the scar tissue is much stiffer, and you can't speak properly. What uh, I, I did is I thought I'd like to look at that, mm -hmm. and, and I did, and I could, I could see that, that we needed to be able to measure the viscoelastic properties of the natural tissues. It's just very soft. It's so soft that you can't measure its property in a standard rheometer at high frequencies. And if you just think about it a bit, if you have something that's really soft, and you take one boundary and you move it at high frequency, the other boundary doesn't even know what, what right. happened over there right. yet. Yeah. <laughs> so deformation is not uniform through the thickness. If the deformation is not uniform through the thickness, it's a wave propagation problem. There's some disturbance that's propagating through. But do you imagine a cylindrical so, deformed so, configuration? So finally we ended up with a disc of this soft material. Yeah. And we would drive the bottom of the disc yeah. and put a little, another little disc on top. We'd monitor the motion of the bottom one and the top one and look at the amplification factor. And that amplification factor tells you about the complex modulus for this material. So that's that's what that patent's about that, right. that you referred to. Yes. It just seemed to me that the whole commercial rheometer business had missed a big hole. They didn't have a rheometer that would work for very soft tissues at high frequencies. I find out now they missed it for a reason. There aren't very many applications <laughs> out there. <laughs> But the impetus to actually patent something to seek protection... It's changed over the years Did that come partly from the university? Or? Yeah, the university is more interested now, mm -hmm. yes. Were they very helpful also in, in carrying it through? They were very helpful in getting the patent. Uh, universities, and I don't mean to hold up Brown... I think it's true of anyone, probably, what any, you're going to say. Yeah. Relative to the others, but they're not very good at, at marketing what the intellectual property is yeah. that they have. So it's not been licensed. But it's had an important application. While I was doing this with vocal folds, Dr. Hopkins, Richard Hopkins, came over to the lab. He works on heart valves. He liked the experiment. Is that similar tissue? Very similar tissues. Mm -hmm. And they don't need the high frequency, mm -hmm. but they need a really good quality way of, of measuring the viscoelastic properties of materials. And he liked it, and so he adopted it. He's now at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. Mm -hmm. He's head of cardiology or children's cardiology or something like that. 
And the problem is this. If a child has a heart valve problem, you can't quite do what you would do for an adult because the child is still growing. So what, what do you do? Well, his idea is this. Another child dies for some reason unrelated to their heart valve. And you take the heart valve from that child, and you can scrub out all the cells. So that's left, what's left is... Just a scaffold. You could then transplant that into the other person. Yeah. There would not be rejection. Then the idea is, is that you take this out, and you take then cells from the patient and put those into the scaffold and put growth factors in and see if you can get this thing to grow. And if you can, then you would have perfect solution. You would have something that in this child, it works initially and it will get stronger with time as it grows. So we did a lot of work on this. We uh, tested um, various animals dogs and calves and sheep and and finally some on on heart valves from humans and we would test them two ways uh, first fresh and then after they they'd had the cells scrubbed out and we wanted to see whether or not the mechanical properties were changed much by scrubbing out the cells the answer was not very much. Oh, I see. So most of it is... So that meant that step one yeah. of his whole plan would be fine. could work. And now it's a competition as to whether or not that can go the next step. I think that it's it's been very difficult. And I think there's some indication that, uh, just from one of his papers, that as you do cyclic loading, some of the mechanical properties may be fading. Anyway, it's a beautiful idea. It's, uh, if it could work, I, I know that there are things like that being done for other parts of the body, and I think the overall concept is a very good concept. What do you, what do you see in terms of timescales? You know, there are different timescales within the way we approach a problem, the way maybe a clinician might approach a problem, the way an engineer, a structural engineer might approach a problem, or a person out in, in, in a commercial enterprise. Time scales are very long in many of these areas. Even though they're long, they're real changes. I mean, cars aren't the same as they once were. The field advances. There's a clear sense of advancement. But uh, generally, it's slow. And but as you say, we perceive progress within the community. Yes, yes. Is there patience from funding agencies, the general public? Is the expectation that science should, should move more quickly? People always want it to move quickly. That's just a truism. They also have this habit of getting excited about one area and putting money there, and then getting excited about another area and putting money here, but meanwhile they pulled money from there. So sustained attention is not So su sustained attention. And this funding business of not being able to know budgets and all that has had a very negative effect on the research enterprise. So is the, the progress that we see, tremendous progress, it appears, in, in the area of technology, some of which is happenstance and may not come from you know, intellectual pursuits in academia necessarily. Do we see this large uh, change because science makes progress more f faster? Or is it that we see a large change because there's so many more people engaged in the science that even small contributions by many people add up to something substantial? I think it's the latter, and I think that, that to judge the quality of a scientific program just by the particular pieces of research that came out of there 
is missing a big point, and that is, what about the students? What about the impact they are having? You know, someone had to help them along the way. I'm a very strong supporter of funding for PhD students. Building competence, human resources. That's right. Infrastructure, yeah. in some sense. Yeah. We will never regret it. On that note, Professor Clifton, I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you for having me. Enjoyed it. This is Harry Dankovich, editor of Applied Mechanics Reviews. Thank you for listening to this Applied Mechanics Reviews audio interview with Professor Rodney Clifton from Brown University. Please remember to come back for more reflections on all aspects of applied mechanics research and professional engagement.